The text is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. After the book of Acts and Romans, you find 1 and 2 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Just to kind of get you caught up on where we are in this particular letter. In chapter 2, Paul is basically asserting his integrity before all the people in Corinth. He's explaining how his love and his burden for the people had caused him to change his travel plans. This is one of the things they've accused him of is he's not reliable. He shows in chapter 2 that really he's just following Jesus Christ in triumphal procession, he says. In other words, I might not get it all right all the time, but I'm serving Jesus and he's going to make it good. So he continues here by comparing himself to the false teachers that were plaguing the Corinthian church and really a testimony to God and his faith in Jesus Christ. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This is His holy Word, His inerrant Word. It's without any error, and it's for you this morning. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Amen. Please be seated. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, We know that there is nothing certain in this world except your truth, your word, indeed your own character. Everything else is flimsy, easily shaken. Your word is eternal and unchangeable. We pray that you would burn it into our hearts by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may not understand it just from this particular text, but when Paul wrote this letter, which is an amazing letter, because you see so much of Paul's heart, uh, he's, he's flying off on tangents all the time by the inspiration of the Spirit. We see him saying many things that reflect his love for God and his trust in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the observation One of the things that makes 2 Corinthians so special, he says he kind of had mixed feelings when he wrote the letter. He says, on the one hand, he was filled with gratitude to God and love to the Corinthians because of their repentance and their ready obedience. On the other hand, feelings of indignation at the perverse and wicked course adopted by the false teachers at Corinth. And Paul is bouncing back and forth throughout the letter between these two Emotions. 
He's a little uncertain as to what is coming, but he's certain that Christ is going to do his work. Many people have become uncertain in life today, just life in America. I thought I would speak to it just a moment. There's reports coming in almost daily about the government, the FBI, arresting peaceful Christian people in their homes for doing something horrible, of course. Something must be tragically terrible. Actually, all they've done is protest around abortion clinics in the past year or two. These are peaceful people who oppose the slaughter of babies. And now they're being targeted. The government, the FBI, seems to have been weaponized to target not only Christians, but really their own political enemies. This makes us uncertain. This is new for Americans. And now we see the tech media industry becoming an arm of the federal government, almost doing the same thing to silence anyone who would speak out publicly about any federal policy. And we all know the taboo topics. Every one of us know them. We all know what we're allowed to say and not allowed to say. Are you allowed to talk about COVID vaccines? No, 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 no. Are you allowed to talk about cheating in the 2020 election? No, don't even bring it up. It's a threat to democracy. Are you allowed to express support for former President Trump? No, 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 don't do that. You're a threat to democracy. Or LGBTQ issues, or January 6th, or anything good related to the South in general. No, don't talk about any of these things. You're a pariah. You're a threat. So did any of you ever think growing up that there would be a time in America in the United States of America, when you're afraid to say something? Like, this is our country. Our country is built on a freedom to speak anything we want, about any topic we want, whenever we want, with protection of the government and the law to do that. Our Constitution gives us those protections, those rights. And if we lose a freedom of speech, we lose America, that's the cornerstone of our country. You take all the other things that make America great, that's the cornerstone, is a freedom to talk about whatever we want, anytime we want. 87,000 new IRS agents, does that make you wonder? Does that make you uncertain? Of course, we know God is sovereign. 87,000 new IRS agents? And I thought IRS agents needed calculators. Like, to find out that they had spent $11 million to buy more powerful calculators so that they can check our taxes? That would make sense. In the past 10 years, the IRS has spent $11 million on ammunition and firearms. What? Does that not make you feel a little unsettled? Seems like a new secret police is rising up. Does it make you unsettled that anti-fascists use the tactics of Nazis, fear, intimidation, threats of imprisonment, confiscation of your phone, coming to your house in the middle of the night, banging your door open? 
And these are people who are doing these things to protect our democracy. Does that unsettle you at all? The whole purpose, of course, being to stifle and persecute those who hold an opposing worldview, certainly a Christian worldview. So how are we to live in such an environment? What are we to do? We love our country. We're disturbed by this new change, this increasingly tyrannical change. What are we to do? Well, in a certain way, Paul felt just as unsettled and conflicted looking at the Corinthian church. And what we learn from Paul, the same lessons that Paul is displaying to the Corinthians, he's basically giving those principles to us. And they're helpful. What is that? He's talking about gospel ministry. But really, the principles apply today in any situation. All that we do our whole lives are live for Christ. And Christ is our confidence. Period. We're alive because of Him. Our situation is because of Him. There's nothing apart from Him and we trust Him. This is what Paul learned as well in ministry. So, with that introduction, the title of the sermon is All in Christ. We can receive comfort by remembering that all that we do, all that Paul did, Regarding ministry, your ministry, your life is in Christ. We'll look at three things quickly. Paul's letter of recommendation. He talks about needing a letter of recommendation. We'll talk about how Paul's ministry is really God's ink writing on human hearts. And we'll look at Paul's confidence in ministry and our confidence in life. So look at verse 1 with me. This is Paul's letter of recommendation. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So Paul's asking two questions here. Both are answered no, emphatically no. Number one, are we commending ourselves again? Paul and Timothy maybe. Number two, do we need letters of recommendation to minister the gospel there? Do we, do we need to bring some letter to you that says, I'm, a, I'm an apostle? He says no to both. So in the first question, we see Paul addressing an accusation made about him by the false teachers. That's why he uses the word again. This is another accusation that's been thrown at Paul by false teachers in Corinth. He's seen this accusation before, that he's just commending himself. You remember... They, that we learned a few weeks ago, that they accused Paul really of just not being a very inspiring personality, not a very uh, dramatic or inspirational speaker. But now they also are accusing him of actually not being a real apostle. He didn't come with a letter of recommendation, and when they write or when they read his letters, they're seeing him just commend himself. He's basically saying, I'm... I'm an apostle and you just have to believe me. Well, that kind of is his message. But Paul's saying, no, I'm not commending myself to you again. I'm not like these other false teachers. I'm not that person. I don't come with letters of recommendation asking you to listen to me. I don't come looking really sharp with amazing speaking abilities and some amazing recommendation from some man I don't need any of that. I've been called by Jesus Christ personally 
You remember he was literally called personally. He was knocked down in the road by Jesus and then told to go minister to Gentiles and then trained for that service. So he says, if they want a letter of recommendation, you, the church, you're my letter of recommendation. That's what he says in verse 2. You yourselves are a letter of recommendation. Look at yourselves. Look at the ministry, my ministry among you and what it's produced. Some of you are believers. Some of you have faith in Jesus Christ. So you're the letter of recommendation. There was a man named Christopher Wren, Sir Christopher Wren. He lived in England from 1632 to 1723. If you've ever been to London and walked through St. Paul's Cathedral, Sir Christopher Wren was the architect. He designed it. He oversaw its completion and many other beautiful churches and buildings in London and in Cambridge. And he's buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. You can go and look at Sir Christopher Wren's tomb. And there's an inscription on his tomb in Latin, but in English it means, basically, if you require a monument, look around you. Isn't that neat? So what he's saying, of course, is I don't have a big monument built to myself, but if you require a monument, if you want to see the the impact of my life, just look around, look up, look at this cathedral. This is the work of my life. Similarly, Paul is saying if they want any recommendation of his effectiveness in ministry by the power of the Spirit, they need to look at their own church, at their own salvation. Paul says, I'm being accused of commending myself, of not having a a letter of recommendation, of having ulterior motives. This isn't the case. I'm not like those men, those false teachers. If you want proof, look at your own faith in Christ. Remember previously, In the letter, verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul had made a similar argument. He said, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul doesn't need a letter of commendation because he's commissioned by God. He's speaking Christ in the sight of God sincerely, without any desire of personal gain, like a peddler of God's word would want to receive some compensation for all of the hard work. He's, he's saying, I don't need anything, want any glory for myself. And finally, your own faith is my letter. Your own faith is the letter of commendation that you desire. The false teachers were the opposite. They were not commissioned by God. They didn't serve with the knowledge that they were in the sight of God. Coram Deo. They weren't sincere. They wanted personal gain. They were peddling God's word to get rich or powerful. And they did have man-made letters that they brought to the church, speaking of their own abilities and whatnot. Like Paul, we should live our lives for Christ alone. You have been commissioned by God, drawn into his family, called specifically by God. 
not just to walk through life and stumble around and wonder what your purpose is. You have a mission like Paul, to shine brightly in a dark world for Jesus Christ. Live for Christ alone. You trust Christ for the results. And his faithfulness, his character is your confidence. That's what Paul's saying for his own ministry. When you live for Christ, you affirm what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Your life is from him and through him and to him. Or all things. It's all for his glory. So remember, when you are thinking about your life, uncertainties in life, feeling like things are unsettled, they might be. But your certainty is in Jesus Christ. What he gives you in life, that's what you need. Whether good or bad, that's what you need. That's what your soul needs. And if he doesn't give something to you, you don't need it. So trust in our Lord. So that's Paul's letter of recommendation as their faith. But secondly, let's look at what Paul says is the ink that's used to write this letter. Paul says his ministry is God's ink. Verse 2, he says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So just like previously Paul had used this triumphal procession, you remember the Roman, the Roman general leading his army and all the prisoners into Rome? He leans on that metaphor to talk about how his ministry, although it might be a little bit off at times, he's actually following Jesus Christ, his commanding general, in victory. It's a triumphal procession. Because his faith is only in Christ and not in himself, his dependence is in Christ, He can be confident. Now he uses the metaphor of a letter, basically to say something very similar. He says, you're our letter. You're written on our hearts. And this is to be known and read by all. Now for something to be written on your hearts, it's certain. Like, what are the things that are written on your hearts? To use that same metaphor. You can be certain of your wife's love or your husband's love. If you are, that's written on your heart. You just know. It's there. I'm certain that God exists, that Christ is coming again, that He's my only Savior. It's not a question. It's written on my heart by God. I know it's true. Paul is using that same kind of language to say that this is absolutely true. It's written on my heart. That what has happened to you because of The ministry of the gospel in Corinth is because of God. These people whose lives have been changed through Paul's ministry there, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Paul is certain that they are changed by the Holy Spirit. And this is written on his heart. And it's not just for him. He says it's to be known and read by all. This letter written on his heart is for everyone to see. It's not just for the leaders of the church if you come with a letter of recommendation. It's for everyone to watch. The whole world will see what has been done in their lives. That God, and it's the same in every age and the same in every church. If the world looks into our church, what will they see? They'll see sinful men and women, God-hating men and women who have been changed 
unredeemed people who now have a new lot in life. And this happened in the city of Corinth, the very pagan city. That church stood like a beacon in the night. And it was a powerful testimony of God's work through the ministry of Paul. Everyone saw it. He's more explicit in verse 3. He says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You're the letter from Christ, delivered by us from our ministry there. God wrote the letter. Paul delivered the letter through the gospel. And the ink that was used for this letter is what? It wasn't real ink. Paul wasn't tattooing people. What was the ink? He says the writing was done by the Spirit of the living God. He didn't write this letter on paper or on a stone like God wrote the Ten Commandments, the moral law on a stone with his own finger. He's, he's wanting you to think about that, the tablet of stone that God wrote on. He said, actually, no, God wrote with his own finger on your own heart. It was a divine work of God to bring you to himself. If he wrote on stone, how much more did the finger of God write truth on your own heart? He's speaking of the glories of the new covenant. And these are the same glories that all the prophets before him had spoken of. The new covenant. Jeremiah 31. You've heard this before. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's talking about when Christ comes or came. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke and I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant was God changing the hearts of each person in a way that was more rare in the time of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30. It's always been about heart change. It's not like the Old Testament people were saved in some different way. No, God has always changed people the same way. By work of the Spirit. We see this in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 as well. When God gave the law to the Israelites, He said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. We see the same message in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, talking of the new covenant, the gospel. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So if God is writing on the hearts of people in the church, there's no higher recommendation that Paul could, could give to the people of the church who want a letter from him. 
So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Air Force promotion system because I see some parallels that are pretty amazing. To get promoted in the Air Force, whether you're an officer or whether you're enlisted, you have a promotion report every year. It's an annual report. So I was in 23 years. I have 23 of these pieces of paper. And there's three raters. You have a primary raider, the guy you work directly for, and you have an additional raider who's the boss of the guy who you work for. And then you have a senior raider who's the boss of the boss of the guy you work for. Well, what you want to get promoted is two things. You want a stratification, like this is the number one guy in all the universe. Like you want, this is my number one officer in the squadron. This is my number one guy. If you get promoted, you have some of those stratifications. If you're the number five out of six officers in the squadron, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get there. But secondly, you want a push line. You want... We call it the last line in the first paragraph. It's the most important line. This is where you get a push. This guy must be promoted because he's got to be a squadron commander. This guy's going to be a general officer. You must promote him now. So the stratification plus the push line is how you get promoted on these performance reports. So if that is all the same for everyone, then it really matters who your raider is, your primary raider, your first boss. Who is that guy? You want the highest ranking primary raider you can get so that there's no one else who's his boss. So people who work for four-star generals, they're in this situation. There's not many people that a four-star works for. So that's a wonderful thing, but very few people get to work directly for a four-star general. So there was a, an officer who's a friend of a friend of mine uh, who was the Air Force military aide to President George W. Bush. That's a Pretty good job. You don't get any higher. There's no one who supervises President Bush. And on his performance report, President Bush just wrote it with a pen. He didn't type it out and make it look pretty. He just took his pen. He said, give me the paper. And he wrote on it, keep promoting this man. And when you stop, call me. So that's pretty good, right? The president says, when you stop promoting this man, call me. I didn't have one of those, obviously. Nobody has one of those. You don't get any higher recommendation than that. Similarly, Paul is saying, I don't need any higher recommendation than what I've given you. And that's the Almighty God doing a work, speaking through me the words of Christ to your heart. The recommendation is as high as it will ever get. I think we can also draw great confidence in this. The church of Jesus Christ, each individual body of Christ, each church that's like our church, is a personal letter to the world. And we don't need to worry that, oh, well, we, not, we might not be shining bright enough we not, might not be good enough for the world to see us and think, oh, well, Jesus is there. No, God has lifted us up and established each one of us. We have the highest letter of recommendation to go out into the world as individuals and as a church and to do the thing that we've been called to do. We are a people who are filled with lust for the world, consumed with selfish desires, desiring pleasure and entertainment, in all kinds of things of this world. 
And God has changed us and made us selfless, made us love others rather than ourselves. Like Moses, we have forsaken the pleasures of Egypt and rather we embrace the reproach of Christ. Moses had everything at his fingertips, pleasure, wealth, status. He forsook it all to embrace the reproach of Christ. We read in Hebrews 11, we have done the same. We don't live for ourselves. We don't have confidence in ourselves. We have confidence in the one who called us, and that's Jesus. So we should not be intimidated by the world. We should not be intimidated or or thinking that somehow our witness isn't good enough. If you have faith in Christ, go out. Shine brightly. You will be noticed by the world. This will be extremely attractive to the world or repulsive to the world. This is what Paul told us last week. But those who live for Christ truly are trophies of his grace. You're a trophy of his grace. He's put you up on the shelf for everyone to see. I had this trophy. I've told you about it before. It's been a few years. I had this trophy when I was a Little League baseball player. I remember we had this big ceremony and there was a table in the middle and there were about 100 trophies on it because everyone got a trophy. We were already giving trophies to everybody. They were all real little things. You know, everyone got one. You showed up. You're on a team. Here's your trophy. Good job. But there was this one gigantic trophy. It had these two big pillars. I still have it. Um, And we were all like, oh, who's going to get the big one? Whoa, that's a monster. And it was for the highest batting average. And so it worked out great for me because I was on the very worst team in the league. So everyone threw their worst pitchers at me. And I was just nailing it. I had a great batting average. But I got my name call. I was shocked. I mean, we were the worst team of all. And here's little Richard Steele walking away with this. It was the size of me. And I put that thing up on the shelf in my bedroom. Boy, when people would come over, I'd be like, hey, let's go to my room for a while. I'm like, why? Well, just come on. I don't know. Let's play in my room. There's that. That's the most shiny thing in my whole room. It's this big old trophy. So proud of it. Do you realize that a million times more, you are a trophy of God's grace? He cherishes you. He's called you. You are his own. So Paul tells the Corinthian church that they are a letter written by the Holy Spirit. And because of this, because of this high recommendation, Paul is confident in his ministry. That's the third point in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. I mean, this is like a life verse for a minister, but it's also a life verse for a Christian. Anything that you think you should be doing for God, you're only sufficient in God. You don't have confidence in yourself or your own abilities. It's the opposite. Such is the weight of the calling. Paul says, I'm not confident in what I'm doing. I'm only confident in Christ. So from like the middle of chapter 2 until now in chapter 3, Paul's saying over and over the same thing. Yes, I make mistakes. Yes, I messed up that trip. Yes, I'm sorry I didn't come visit you when I said. I know I'm not the best speaker. 
but God has used my ministry to affect grace in your lives. Not because of my excellence or my superior knowledge. This is not a self-confidence, Paul says. No, he says, I'm only confident in Christ. To speak the words of Christ in the sight of Almighty God. That's it. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? Of course, the answer is nobody is sufficient for these things. Who's sufficient to go out and do what you have to do as ministers who have been, who have been sent out by the elders for a work of ministry in your community? Who's sufficient? You're not, but Christ is. That's why ministers of the gospel, that's why you going out to minister the gospel to the community have the same confidence today. I do what I do commissioned by Christ and before the face of God. And the fruit of whatever ministry happens at Meadow Creek is a testimony to God, not to me. He uses broken vessels. He uses crooked sticks. He uses jars of clay like you and like me to do his work in the world. So we recognize our total inability to accomplish the task, but we see the total and complete ability for Christ to do it. So we trust him to do his work. This reminds me of Luke chapter 5. Remember the Jesus is calling disciples and he's on the shore and he's looking out at this boat in the water. And there's some of his disciples on that boat. And he says, throw your net on the other side. And they said, Lord, it's been all night. Like we've been laboring all night. We've caught nothing. Throw your net on the other side. And they're like, okay, let's, let's just do this because the old man says to do it, and then he'll leave us alone. They throw the net on the other side, and what happens? It's immediately bombarded with fish. The boat's about to sink. What's the lesson? In their own efforts, they could do nothing, but later Jesus tells them right after that event, I will make you fishers of men. In their own strength, in their own efforts, are they going to catch any men? No. It's only because of Christ that they were able to catch all those fish. It's only because of Christ that he will bring people to himself through your work in the community, through my work in the ministry. And I think it's telling. You can always tell where a minister's confidence lies. If the confidence really is in your own abilities and yourself and your accomplishments, your status, what's it going to produce? Pride. Prickliness. Don't want anyone to criticize anything that you do. Contempt for others, fear, anxiety, indifference. I just, I'm not going to even care. But if your confidence is like Paul in Christ alone, what does it produce? A confidence, a humility, long suffering with others, a transparent attitude. You have nothing to hide, an attitude of a slave in service to others. Peace in God's sovereignty to work all things out. This is the confidence of a, of a minister, but it's also the confidence of every Christian in a very uncertain world. Are you going to make it through this difficult time in America by relying on your own smarts, your own abilities? You're going to see great fear and anxiety. You're going to see great sensitivity to anything that might not measure up to your particular idea of what things should look like. You're going to see pride, contempt of others, or indifference. But if your confidence is in Christ alone, it's all the opposite. You have peace. 
You know that God has all things in His hands. You know that He loves His children. This is Paul's confidence for ministry. It's your confidence for life. In regarding this call that Paul says in verse 6, he says, Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? Christ has. He has made us sufficient to do this work, to do this ministry, to bring spiritual life to sinful people. How? By the Holy Spirit. He gives us new hearts. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, he says. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's showing the contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant. The law demanded perfect obedience. Certainly, Paul says in Romans, the law is righteous and just and good. He's not disparaging the law. But he's just showing that the law commands complete obedience. And if you fail, you will die. He's showing that the law cannot save. No one can be justified by keeping the law. That's the the contrast he's pulling out. The law makes you aware of your need of a Savior. Nobody's ever obeyed it. And that's how he can say the letter kills. There's no gospel just in the law. Gospel means good news. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I thought was very helpful. He says, the law in every form, moral or mosaic, natural or revealed, kills. In demanding works as the condition of salvation, it must condemn all sinners. But the gospel, whether as revealed in the promise to Adam after his fall, or the promise to Abraham in the writings of Moses, or in its full clarity in the New Testament, the gospel gives life. That's why he says the Spirit gives life. He's talking about the gospel. In the gospel, we see Christ's righteousness is adequate to redeem us from all of our sin and our slavery to sin and death. In the gospel, we see the Spirit produce in us an assurance of God's love and of our inheritance in heaven. And in the gospel, we see that the Holy Spirit transform our hearts. Right on our hearts, the finger of God, taking our stony heart and giving us a heart of flesh. To love the thing that God loves. To love God Himself. To follow God's law, not because it's a rule, the letter, but because we want to please our Father. So let's conclude with this. All that we do is done in the Spirit for Christ. This is how we live. This is how Paul is saying he lived and ministered as a man of sincerity commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak Christ. He saw all of his ministry in the light of Christ. It's all for Christ, by Christ, about Christ, for Christ. All of it. This should be our mantra as well. All for Christ. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says he preached the gospel of Christ. Look at the repetition. Chapter 2, verse 14. He is led by Christ. 2, verse 14. He spreads the fragrance of Christ. 2.15. His life is an aroma of Christ. 2.17. He speaks in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3. Believers show their transforming work of Christ in their lives. Chapter 3, verse 4. He has confidence only in Christ. Everything he is doing is pointing to Christ. So the question is, I think, how does this union with Christ in our own lives come about? The how is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
regarding your salvation as you cast yourself upon Christ and his mercy, trusting in the good news, the gospel, as you seek and, em- and pray to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have the repentance and faith that's required that is foreign to you. The Holy Spirit in his time and for God's glory does his work. That's one thing about the modern presentation of the gospel. It's very frustrating. As you see this, this presentation of the gospel that makes it seem like that you just snap your fingers. Okay, I'm ready. Save me, Lord. Okay. Like God's a cosmic bellhop just waiting to go grab your suitcase. Like That's not how salvation works. He saves you in His time for His own glory. You don't snap your fingers and get your Big Mac at the drive-thru. Your gospel Big Mac. That's not how it happens. In His grace, sometimes He does save people at that moment that they ask. But the, the thought that He's just waiting for you to kind of to start snapping, and then He jumps to, no, you might have to pray for a while, because when you're saved, you'll know it. When the Holy Spirit changes your heart, you'll know it. It's a work of the Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus as much, didn't he? How do I? Oh, you got to be born again. You won't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. Well, what's that all about? Well, the Spirit blows wherever it will. You don't know where it's coming or where it's going. The Holy Spirit must change you. So cast yourself upon Christ. Pray that you might have repentance and faith. Turn your heart to Christ and pray. And the Holy Spirit will come. He will give you the faith that you need, the repentance that you desire. And that's the beauty of it. He gives exactly what He requires. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to to muscle out this faith. He gives it. But regarding your sanctification, it's also by the Holy Spirit. Because once He saves you, your union with Christ is sure. He makes you holy for His own service. It's the work of the Spirit. Like all of Paul's ministry, the entire Christian life is empowered by the Spirit of God. And this is a comfort to us. John Owen, this is the last bit. John Owen sweetly talks of the gift of the Spirit in his book, Communion with God. He said, God gives and sends and pours out His Spirit, sealing His own people in covenant. So our efforts in ourselves as we strive to please God and shine brightly in the world, we feel inadequate. Maybe we feel a little scared in this environment. They always have, Christians of all ages. John Owen says the Holy Spirit gives in that environment. He will give a poor sinful soul, a comfortable persuasion, affecting it throughout in all of its facilities and affections, that God and Jesus Christ loves him, delights in him. This is what the Spirit does when he saves you. You know that God loves you. You know that God delights in you, is well pleased with him, has thoughts of tenderness and kindness towards him. He gives, I say, a soul an overflowing sense of this love. And this is God's great mercy in life. So this is our confidence. It's the love of God in Christ shed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we live as open letters of the grace of God to a watching world. So don't be intimidated by life. You are a letter to the world. You have the highest recommendation that anyone in the world could ever want. 
Your heart has been written on by the Spirit of God. He's your confidence. And the results of your life and ministry are all in his hands. So be confident, brother and sister, in the love of God for you. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you have shed your love in our hearts. That we might know how wide and deep and high and great is the love that you have for your people. If there are people in this room who do not know that love, maybe they've been in church their whole lives, but they don't really know what we're talking about. Lord, we pray that you would change hearts, that you would give them a desire to know you, maybe for the first time, to see you clearly. For those of us, for those in this room who who know you, who know that you've changed us. You've, you've taken our sinful and, and hard hearts and a work, a miraculous work has happened and now we love you. Where once we once felt threatened by you and hated you. Lord, we thank you for that. and We pray that you would sanctify us. That you would help us. That we would love you more. That we would serve you well. That you'd be glorified in our lives. That we would not fear, but we would have great confidence in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.